Hello, and welcome to This is Modern Rock. I'm Will Westerkow, and we are here with a special mid-season bonus episode. I'm joined today by Andre Middleton. Welcome, Andre. Thank you, Will. I appreciate you having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. What should we talk about? What you do? Who you are? Once again, my name is Andre Middleton. I am a founder and executive director of this really cool nonprofit called Friends of Noise. Uh, we are a nonprofit that promotes all ages music. Mm-hmm. Um, we support youth musicians. Um, and we really do three things really well. We um, produce professional development workshops for young people. Okay. How to set up a stage, how to do a sound check, how to set up a PA, how to make merch. Um, the second thing we do really well is that we actually produce our own series of concerts. Okay. All of our concerts are multi generational, so there'll be adult artists on the same lineup with youth artists. Mm-hmm. So um, we get kids paid gigs. That's what we do. That's cool. And then the last thing we do is that we get kids on both sides of the stage gigs for other people. So, for example, we have a cohort of young people who run our sound, who run our PA and set up everything. And it occurred to us like a year ago, if we can have teenagers make a punk show sound great one day and then hip hop show sound great the next, then they could do somebody's wedding sure. or they can do a gala or a yeah. fundraising. So we've been getting clients who've been paying our kids to bring in all of our gear and do sound and audiovisual for their events. So we've done fundraisers, um, we've done garden parties. Uh-huh. We haven't done a wedding yet or a bat mitzvah, but we're, we're, we're open to it. Yeah, that's exciting. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, one thing I, I frequently hear about is the lack of all-ages venues in Portland. Apparently, there used to be quite a few more, and they've slowly disappeared over the years. You know, if you don't support something, it atrophies. Mm-hmm. And I think it's fair to say that the Portland, whether the city government or the adult music scene, didn't give a lot of love to these underage spaces because there isn't the same profit motive. Let's be realistic. Right. Unfortunately, we live in a society in a time where alcohol sales is really what these places really do. They sell alcohol and the entertainment is just a reason to come in. So we're trying to flip that script. How do we have the music be what matters? Mm -hmm. Um, So you don't need to be high. You don't need to be drunk in order to participate and enjoy it. Sure. And so far, um, we like what we do. And it's been a lot of fun. Cool. If we want kids to get inspired and pick up their own instruments and start their own bands, start their own groups, whatever... Like they got to be able to get out there and see other people. They do. All right. Well, let's get into the episode. Let's do this. The theme here, I suppose, is black artists on the modern rock charts. Why are we doing this episode? I went through ahead of time for all of 1991. I was making my lists of all the songs we we're going to listen to. And I noticed a couple things. One was that it seemed like there were more black artists on the charts this year than in any previous years that I'd done. But the other thing is when I made my first round of selections no black artists were popping up on my playlist. And that's partially due to the format, right? I I always play every number one song and no black artist hit number one. But it's also just like a numbers game. This is something that happens. It's very real. If there's like 5% of the artists on the list at any time are are black or female or whatever it is, there's not a a huge chance they're going to make it onto the list when you only get to pick four. I mean, that's not just my podcast, that's life. Right. So I felt like these black artists here, they're making really cool music, oftentimes very different than uh, their white contemporaries. Mm -hmm. So we're going to start with Seal. Okay. AKA Henry Samuel. Wow, it took me a while to learn that. Yeah. Yeah. He's a British musician. He was born to a Nigerian mother and an Afro-Brazilian father. Oh, wow. But he was raised by a foster family in Westminster, London. 
Well, he turned out fine. Yeah. Yeah, it could have been worse. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. He's, I guess, known for his facial scars. Yeah, that's, I, I have heard of that. I looked this up, and the first thing I found was his facial scars, despite what rumors say, were caused by lupus. But they didn't say what the rumors were. I have no idea what rumors are going around about his face. Right. Growing up, never heard of the rumors. Okay. I'm mean, not to say that, you know, maybe it just didn't travel in those circles. Yeah. You don't cotton and gossip. You yeah, don't yeah. trade and sure, gossip. Sure. <laughs> but, um, wow, lupus, I didn't know that it caused scarring. But like I said, it did not hold him back. I right. mean, he was a bit of a sex symbol mm-hmm. in his day. You know, he knew how to pull the honeys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. for us all, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> so he spent some time roaming around the world in various funk and blues bands. Eventually, he returned to London. In 1990, he teamed up with an acid house producer named Adam Ski. The guy's name is Adam, so I I don't know how to pronounce this. Let's go with Adam Ski. I got to tell you, when I used to play video games, Uh you know how when you get a top score, you get to put your name at the end of it? And my was always Dre Ski. Uh So maybe we could be related. Yeah. We could be, me and Adam could be related. If you ever (laughs) uh, become an acid house producer. There you go. I've got the ski all ready to go. Dre Ski, yeah. So um, Adam Ski, uh, he had this song ready to go, but he needed someone to sing. Seal lent his vocals to this track called Killer. And it went to number one in the UK. So this is before Seal even had a a record deal at all. He just guest vocalist on someone's track, number one hit. Yeah. From there, he gets signed. In 1991, he puts out his debut album, Seal. And the first single was called Crazy. And it was a crazy big hit. Wow. Hit number five on the modern rock charts. It hit number seven on the US Hot 100. Hit number two in the UK. From what I understand, the song took two months to record. Wow. And it was inspired by the falling of the Berlin Wall. I do recall hearing about that. Yeah. It's interesting when you talk about the interesting notion of a song getting on both the pop and modern rock charts, because when you think about it, um, it's appealing to you know overlapping audiences. Mm-hmm. Like you said, you know how much radio play is it getting? How much college radio play? How much mainstream? Um, how much club play is it getting? Right. You know how many you know how many people are rocking it or hearing about it at a club? You know I think like the '90s, the club scene was pretty big, not just over in London, but in New York and LA and Atlanta and Chicago. So it's interesting to think how a lot of people were hearing music in that organic way, hence the modern rock side, and mm-hmm. then. You know, which what, what direction did it come from? You know, did it come from the modern rock side, and then someone hears, "Oh, Dad, you got to hear this," and next thing you know, it's in some clear channels guy hands, and it's playing on the radio, or is it the way the other way around? You know, where someone heard it on the radio and said, "You know, we have to hear this in this club or at this party." Yeah, I have some other things to say about Seal and Crazy, but um, why don't we just listen to the song first, share our thoughts about it, and then I'm all ears. Yeah, talk a little more. Here we go. This is Seal with Crazy. It's interesting. This might be the first time that I could think I've actually listened to the song with really good headphones. Mm-hmm. And there's just such nuances that I don't remember hearing when I was in my late teens in sure. 91 that really floor me now. I also like and find myself responding to the underproduction of his voice. Mm-hmm. 
and maybe it's in comparison to so much auto-tuning we hear today. Sure. It felt like there was a rawness that I found refreshing. Yes. Auto-tuning, it takes the humanity out of the voice. You gain pitch-perfect notes and you, you lose some realness. You know, if we're talking, this is 91, MTV and VH1 are still powerhouses. Yep. I do remember it being a, a striking um, image of Seal with this really dark skin. Mm-hmm. I think, remember, you know, wearing a white shirt. Okay. And might have been flowing and might have been yeah. opened. Like, you know, yeah, see his, his right, muscles. It, right, his yeah. abdomen. Yeah. And I do remember how it was wonderful to see someone who was singing in his glory, him, him being himself, with his facial scars yeah. and with his humanity. Yeah. And um, I think that at that time, that was an important thing. All right, so Crazy, I mean, it's a great song. It's been covered by a ton of artists, featured in a ton of movies and TV shows from Beverly Hills 90210 to Baywatch. Oh, wow. Notably, Alanis Morissette covered this song for a Gap commercial. And I think it was like a number three hit in Italy or something like that. Oh, wow. So kind of weird. But Crazy would be Seal's biggest U.S. hit until 1995's Kiss from a Rose. Oh, well, that was from a movie too. Yeah, although um, apparently that song was released in 1994, didn't do very well. And then in 1995, it was on the Batman Forever soundtrack and they re-released it and it was a huge hit. And uh, Seal ended up winning the Grammy for Record of the Year and Song of the Year in 1996 for Kiss from a Rose. Wow. Even though it was recorded back in 94. And apparently written by Seal in 1987. Wow. You got to hold on to that stuff. Yeah. You never know what's going to come through yeah. for you. Yeah. I mean, I love that song too. I think that's that's a great one. What else? Seal, he notably married supermodel Heidi Klum. Yeah. I still I still remember that moment. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> dude. Yeah. Way and, to go. And, and then he got divorced from Heidi Klum. <laughs> he, he did. It was, yeah. 2004 to 2014. And in 2016, Seal played Pontius Pilate in Tyler Perry's The Passion, New Orleans. Huh. Also, Seal is apparently on a show called Masked Singer. Oh, I've heard of Masked Singer. Is he the Masked Singer? He is a Masked Singer. Okay. For those of you who are not familiar, a bunch of celebrities, they don these costumes, they sing various cover songs, and their identity is a secret. And the judges will vote to keep them or vote to kick them off. And if they're kicked off, they are unmasked. If you told me the description of this show 10 years ago, Uh I'd say, oh, my house seal has fallen. But the reality is reality shows are big. I mean, between the voice, between, you know, America's Got Talent, Mm -hmm. between Dancing with the Stars. Dancing with the Stars. Mm -hmm, So and those are all these celebrities whose careers are actually being buoyed by being seen and by being heard. So um no shade on Seal being a furry. Let me yeah. stop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, although in this case, more more uh, heard than seen. Okay. <laughs> right? He was uh, he was in disguise as the leopard. You see, like I said, being a furry. <laughs> uh-huh. And uh, this is the second season of the show. The first season was won by none other than Mr. Autotune himself, T-Pain. Wow. So that was Seal number five. That peaked in July of 1991. We're going to move on to... Fishbone. Ah, my fave. So this band was formed way back in 1979 in Los Angeles. Well, that must have been mere babes. I would assume so. This was one of those hybrid bands where you can't quite place their sound. They're bringing in ska and funk and punk and metal and some reggae, some soul. Frequently, they have social commentary in their lyrics. Mm -hmm. In 1987, Fishbone released their first album, In Your Face. And 
They made an appearance in the Annette Funicello, Frankie Avalon beach movie, Back to the Beach. I remember that. And uh, that's a movie that when I was a kid, I saw many times and I have not seen since I was probably 11. But I remembered Pee Wee Herman was in that movie. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of cameos. I think Gilligan and the Skipper were in there. I mean, I wouldn't have known who Fishbone were at the time, but I was like, I don't remember Fishbone being like, what is that? So I looked it up on YouTube, and as soon as the scene started, I was like, yes, I I do remember this guy. (laughs) This guy with a mohawk jumps out from behind a barrel, and they start singing uh, (laughs) Jamaica Ska. (laughs) And uh, I'm actually going to play a short clip of that. Oh, dope. Not many people can cha-cha-cha. Not everybody can do the twist. I have to give props to Annette Funicello. May she rest in peace. She was a visionary. Yeah. A visionary. Yeah. I mean, I think America, the world, was not prepared for the energy, for the sheer life that Fishbone brought to every performance. I mean, you see him in a photograph. You see him on video. You see him on stage. They were the consummate performers mm-hmm. and were bringing that kind of energy to everything that they did. Yeah. yeah. In 1991, Fishbone released their third album, The Reality of My Surroundings. Oh, boy, that was a chart topper. This was their biggest hit. Yeah. Number 49 on the U.S. album charts. And we're going to listen to the second single from that album called Sunless Saturday. If my memory serves me correctly, I want to say that Lollapalooza was in full swing right about mm-hmm. then. Yep. It was great to see them on that stage. Mm -hmm. It was great to see them reach that pinnacle. I mean, without a doubt, you know, the reality of my surroundings was probably their peak. Yes. A little less ska at that point, Mm -hmm. you know, a little more rock, a little more punk, a little more aggro, a little more um, socially conscious. They ended up having some schisms and some some issues um, after that album because it was a departure from In Your Face and Truth and Soul. I mean, they had done some holiday releases, but yeah. Reality My Surroundings was a big departure. All right, well, let's listen to it. We're going to we're going to hear Sunless Saturday. Like I said, number 5 on the modern rock charts. Here we go. Well, in contrast to when we were talking about Seal, this was an album that I listened to in my headphones constantly. Uh-huh. I was rollerblading around town. I was wearing my Jinko jorts. Yeah. And, nice. uh, and yeah, this was something that was in my headphones and in my ear constantly. Yeah, um, while you did backflips out of the bowl. Oh, or, man. Yeah. yeah. And I was sliding down um, handrails. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I had it all. It's incredible to see the progression. Uh-huh. I mean, their first album had songs like UGLY, You Ain't Got No Alibi, You're Ugly. Simple, you know, two, three chord progression, you know, some horns, but to hear now between the keyboard, the horns, the guitar, this was to some degree loud black music. Yeah. It was expressing a level of outrage. I think that song could still be played today mm-hmm. and hopefully would appeal to a segment of our population. This predates Raids Against the Machine mm-hmm. and it is still, you know, 
playing in that same sandbox of how we're bringing really intense musicality, you know, intense instrumentalization with creating these visuals that are really hard to take. Yeah, absolutely. I was also struck at the chorus. At moments, they were all singing together. Oh, yeah, the harmonies. Right, the harmonies. And there were at least five or six of them, Mm -hmm. and they're all getting in on that. And, I mean, so for me, that evoked almost a bit of a Negro spiritual kind of vibe, especially with some of the keyboards we heard earlier, um, where there was this, you know, we're raising our voices together in unison, Uh in fellowship. But, yeah, I just... For me, this was a touchstone. For yeah. me, that album in particular. I mean, like I said, In Your Face, Truth and Soul, all those albums were building up to this. Mm-hmm. And being like I said, this was their peak, they really put it all into it. Yeah. Like my friends would say, they broke their foot off in it. Nice. <laughs> so yeah, no, that was, that was very cool. I enjoyed that song. In 2010, uh, Everyday Sunshine, The Story of Fishbone was released, documentary about the band critical acclaim for that too i think it had like a hundred percent on rotten tomatoes it is heartbreaking yeah it's heartbreaking only because you know there's talk of hey we've got to do a tour together because we need the money Mm -hmm. it was that kind of stuff it was seeing artists who were you know pogoing and jumping across the stage and working up a sweat in you know the mid to late 80s and here it is now 2010 and they're older men, mm-hmm. you know, men of a certain age, so to speak. And yeah. the thing that they're still having to go out there, hit the pavement, drum up sales, you know, get the word out. And while there are parts between the Chili Peppers and Fishbone that were alike, they were competitors, mm-hmm. you know. And I, I remember at the time feeling that Fishbone might have been just a step too far. You know, the rallying of my surroundings took all of their social awareness and all their rage and really distilled it into something that I'm surprised didn't have an afterlife. Mm-hmm. As great as that album was, you know, just forces beyond them, you know, the grunge era came into play. Yeah. Um, metal was in the decline. So there's so many forces that were beyond their ability control and the market is what the market is. Mm-hmm. But I have to admit, I was surprised that that was their swan song, so to speak. Sure. And I'm surprised that Fishbone doesn't come up in conversation more often when, when I read retrospectives, when I see best of lists, when I read about important bands. Mm-hmm. All right. So a couple last things I want to mention. They appeared frequently in soundtracks and sometimes they actually show up in cameo roles, not just Back to the Beach, but other movies as well. And they had one particularly big fan in John Cusack who has helped push his love of Fishbone multiple times. Mm-hmm. So in his 1988 movie, Tape Heads, mm-hmm. the band Fishbone actually shows up and they perform in it, although under a different name. In 2010's Hot Tub Time Machine, John Cusack prominently displays a Fishbone t-shirt. And maybe most notably, 1989's teen romance comedy, Say Anything, when John Cusack, this is like the, the iconic scene where he holds up the boom box uh-huh. trying to uh, win back his lady love. So that scene famously plays Peter Gabriel's In Your Eyes. But when they actually filmed it, uh, the song coming out of the boom box was Fishbone's Turn the Other Way. Oh, wow. So That reminds me, I've got a little more trivia for you. Sure. In the movie Bull Durham, uh-huh. 
towards the end of the movie, the Tim Robbins character gets up to play at the big show. Uh-huh. And he's getting his first interview, and he's wearing a fishbone t-shirt underneath his like Miami Vice-style sport coat. Okay. I totally remember that. Yeah. Well, Tim Robbins also was in Tape Heads. Yes, he, yes he, well, well so, it's all coming together. So I think we got a couple uh, couple yep. friends who are I, big Fishbone fans. I think we do. Yeah. We do. Yeah, right on. There it is, Fishbone. The third band we're going to listen to today is called Stress, not to be confused with a number of other bands and artists also named Stress. Apparently, a lot of people are stressed out there, and it's a, it's a popular choice of name. This Stress is a British three-piece where British, I have no idea. I couldn't find that information out. But they released one album in 1991, also called Stress. It's kind of a throwback in some sense. It's like a neo-psychedelic band, mm-hmm. I think is what they've been described as. This does not seem to be a band that had a huge following or that mm. a lot was written about. But they did manage to make it to number seven in June of 1991. That's not nothing. People who were listening to the radio listening to modern rock radio, we're probably actually hearing this song on fairly regular rotation, at least for a little while. So if there's anyone out there who's like a really big stress fan, please write in and, and let us know. I'd love to hear more about this band. Ditto on that. Yeah. Let's listen to it. This is the, the, the song that hit number seven. It's called Flowers in the Rain. And here it is. Some say heaven's here on earth, but it's nowhere to be found now. I'm sure they probably got this a lot, but I definitely was feeling some uh, Lenny Kravitz Mm -hmm. in there. I was kind of surprised when I found out this was a British band, just from an initial listen. But when you really get into the song, there is that spoken word breakdown. I did not make the connection, but now that I'm replaying it in my brain, I can hear it far more now. Okay, yeah. I think I should mention the... um, heavy use of the sitar yes, as an instrument. Did hear that. I don't know. I have mixed feelings about the sitar. I guess I should rephrase that. The sitar is a wonderful instrument with a long and rich history in Indian music. I have mixed feelings about the sitar in rock music because it conjures very specific feelings of 60s English bands attempting to branch out into this like I'm expanding my mind, sort of psychedelica sound. Right. It almost has become kind of a... I was going to say cliche, cl- but... No, yeah, you're right. Yes, it's become something of a cliche, yeah. And and so when I hear it here, part of me goes like, you know, I like it. It's a neat sounding instrument. And part of me is like, eh, kind of corny. I'm willing to defend them on these grounds. And I've said this about black film. I've said this about black writing. When practitioners mm-hmm. have had limited access to lived experience mm-hmm. in order to hone their craft, there can be a bit of a, a stunting. Mm-hmm. So maybe they didn't hear a lot of sitar music growing up and they weren't listening to um, Ravi Shankar in a way that could have placed that time. Maybe for them, it's like, oh wow, this is so great. Yeah. I'm really enjoying this. And you know, it really does fit in the vibe that we're trying to reach. Yes, it does fit. It does kind of make us feel more spiritual. Mm-hmm. So maybe it was newish to them, sure. where they maybe did not see 
the multiple other iterations of that to say, wow, guys, we need to come up with something a little different. I appreciate the tone that we're going for, but let's find a different way of getting there. Sure. So I can give them a little break on that. Sure, absolutely. And also, I have no idea how old these guys are, right? I mean, especially younger musicians, like you can't expect that they've heard everything from their parents' generation. Right. Maybe they heard one song and they thought it was cool and they're like, what is that instrument? Let's get that thing. They rip the album off the record player, like run down to their local record store. What song, what, what, yeah. what instrument yeah. is this? Have you heard this Norwegian wood? <laughs> yeah. If you look them up, it, Stress has only released one album, but the guys released another album in 1997. It's just under a different name and not sure how to pronounce it. I want to say it's Incubator. And so they had an album called Hatched in 1997, which also makes me think the name of the band is Incubator if their album title is going to be Hatched. Um, and now that's sounding silly to me. It's pretty and on it's, point. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty on the, noise, <laughs> on the nose right there. But this album features some notable contributions. So Lenny Kravitz is on this album, as is Daniel Lanois, who is a notable musician in his own right, but he also is really famous for doing some awesome work with U2. And um, Carl Wallinger from World Party. I remember uh, World Party. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. Sounds like the potential for something cool there. Mm-hmm. I've not listened to Incubator, but... I think this also brings up what has to be acknowledged is that back in the time, a big name like Lenny Kravitz could probably get another band a lot of airplay. Mm-hmm. They toured together. Yeah. So, while it might be a mystery to some, hey, how do these guys get on the, yeah. on, the on the modern rock charts? coattails and you know i don't want to go and call it nepotism we're not talking about that we'll call it the uh, the assist the assist exactly exactly and i think that is a completely valid way of getting your foot in the door and then it's up to you to take the ball and run with it sure and obviously that didn't happen but i think it's wonderful that they got their shot yeah all right, and then let's see, at some point, maybe 1998 or so, the drummer from Stress, Ian Mussington, he joined Soul Asylum. Oh, wow. So pretty big uh, modern rock band yeah. right there. Uh, we're going to listen to one more band. Okay. This band is called Dream Warriors. Not to be confused with the 1987 Dawkins song, Dream Warriors. Or the West Craven Nightmare yes. on Elm Street. Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3, yeah. Dream Warriors. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Those were uh, pre-1991, right? So I imagine this band, this group, Dream Warriors, must have been familiar, if not with the song, then at least with Nightmare on Elm Street. Our d- creativity doesn't happen in a vacuum. Yeah. 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 So what do you think? It's not stealing, it's, em- it's embellishing. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Like, they watched the movie. I doubt they said that was an amazing movie. Let's name ourselves after it. But they probably thought, like, that's kind of a cool concept, a dream warrior. Hey, Patricia Arquette was incredible uh, in that movie. Patricia Arquette, yeah, that's right. See, I <laughs> <laughs> you knew you've seen you've seen you've seen Dream Warriors. Yes, I. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Dream Warriors, the uh, the group we're going to listen to. This is a Canadian hip hop duo comprised of King Lou and Capital Q, and they are considered to be part of the early '90s jazz rap movement. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. With like Diggable Planets, for mm-hmm. example. Mm-hmm. In 1991, they released their debut album, which is called And Now the Legacy Begins, which is a bold way to start your career. You know, if the shoe fits. Uh-huh. <laughs> if it fits. If it fits, yeah. <laughs> the Legacy started out pretty well for them. The album spawned three singles that hit the top 40 in the UK. In the US, it did not do as well, but it did put one song on the modern rock charts, and that's what we're going to hear today. In June of 1991, 
my definition of a boombastic jazz style hit number 24. And I should mention, it also won the Juno Award for Best Rap Recording of the Year. Now, that's a Canadian Grammy, I'm assuming? Yep, that's right. Great. So, here we go. We're going to listen to it. My definition of a boombastic jazz style. When I kick rhymes, it's often said to do damage. Skin so strong, even Superman needs a hand. So bob your head, dread as I kick the funk flow. This rhyme is subliminal, yet you don't think so. I walk with a gold cane, a gold brain, and no gold chain. Behind the truth lies, there lies a pair of bits. In the mix is where dream warriors go. To find a few will, but I know so. There is no definition. My definition, my definition, my definition is this, my definition. I sure hope that Quincy Jones got a cut of that. These days, he certainly would have. He would have probably got most of the cut of that. The main sample that that song was built around was from Quincy Jones's 1962 Soul Bossa Nova. Cha-ching! Yep. And this song was used for a popular Canadian game show called Definition, which ran from, I don't know, sometime in the 70s until 1989. So Dream Warriors, Canadian band, they were definitely familiar with this theme song from this game show. (laughs) Also, I should mention fellow Canadian Mike Myers also was a fan of uh, this game show definition because he used this same Quincy Jones song as the Austin Powers intro music from Austin Powers, International Man of Mystery. I thought that sounded familiar. Yep, that's right. And of course, for those of you not familiar with Quincy Jones, he's not a modern rock artist, but he's a legendary producer and musician, maybe most famously at this point, worked with Michael Jackson on his biggest albums. And uh, he produced We Are the World. That's correct. And he also worked with movies and TV too. He produced The Wiz and he produced The Color Purple and he produced The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. And he produced Rashida Jones. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's true. (laughs) That's true. So nice work. I like her. Yeah. So I remember that there was a really big kind of jazzy hip-hop movement in the early 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, think of Diggable Planets, think of Us Three, think of DJ Guru and Jazzmatazz. Mm-hmm. And I think to some degree, it was almost a reaction to the beginning of the pushback against rap sampling. Mm-hmm. And they said, okay, how do we make this more of a hybrid? How do we bring in these samples and celebrate the samples instead of hiding them and putting them under layer, under layer, under layer? So in that context, they were pioneers, mm-hmm. you know, in at 91 to, to do this and to do it so boldly because they were followed by a, a variety of artists, a variety of acts that are celebrating the jazz age, but trying to make it more modern or more hip. It was danceable. It was upbeat. And it was fun, you know. Also, it was important still for there to be space for a very happy, upbeat. We're here just we're here to have fun. We're going to be wearing our you know our necklaces and our our flowers and our Uh sunglasses. I mean, there was a real role for that, Mm -hmm. without a doubt. Yeah, Dream Warriors. uh, They continued on for a little while. In 1992, they appeared on the soundtrack to Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the movie, with a cover of Harry Belafonte's Man Smart, Woman Smarter. Oh, wow. I could not find a copy of that. That is not on the internet. Hey, Josh Whedon, if you happen to be listening to this show, could you just, you know, help a out? I mean, I'd yeah. appreciate it, yeah. just putting it out there. I'm sure there's someone out there who's got a copy of that soundtrack. The band continued. They released three more albums, and they picked up some extra band members along the way. And at some point, they broke up. It's not really clear to me when, but their most recent album was in 2002, 
I will say this though, all music really, really liked their debut album, the one that this song, my definition of a boobmastic jazz style is from. Mm-hmm. They gave it four and a half stars. And they said it's right up there with Tribe Called Quest and Arrested Development. They should belong in the same conversation. So if you're interested in those groups, uh, maybe check out Dream Warriors. I miss those days mm-hmm. of conscious, pro-black, uplifting women, um, not putting them down, um, not calling them hoes and this and that. That was a very unique time to be a teenager mm-hmm. um, or a young adult and hear that as part of, hey, yeah, we can be happy. We can be hopeful. Yeah. We can look for a meaning to the music that is uplifting. And that, that was a very unique time. And yeah, I completely agree 100% that they definitely deserve to be a part of that Pantheon. Yeah. All right, cool. So that's our four bands. Wow. Uh, yeah. One thing I noticed was that of these four bands, only one of them was from the U.S. And, and that was Fishbone. That was Fishbone. I don't know. I mean, that could just be a coincidence, but I was curious, are the modern rock charts more open to black artists from other countries than they are to the U.S.? Or are black artists in the U.S., for whatever reason, just making less modern rock music? Let me put it this way. I think that due to the colonialist nature of England, they imported a lot of different cultures, a lot Mm -hmm. of different people, and really did force them to assimilate in a way that was different than here in America. While we had, you know, Jim Crow and certain laws that really oppressed and kept black voices down there, they didn't have the same level of oppression. And there was a little less, you have to be like us in order for us to be accepted. Mm -hmm. So I think that did allow a certain openness and freedom that allowed them to, I mean, look how big ska and reggae was in In England. England, That's only like 20 miles away from our shores, yet it just jumped over us and really found a place there because there was a direct line of communication between, um, you know, the British Virgin Islands and the colonies in England. So I do think there might've been a less freedom. Did you ever see the movie about death? Oh, the band. The band I did, yeah, yeah. You know, they should have been playing bigger shows in bigger towns, but they just didn't fit the mold of what was accepted. And when black artists get such a thin slice of the media landscape, if you didn't fit in that slice, you weren't going to get much airplay. Yeah. All right. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about before we wrap things up? Um, let me say thank you. Yeah. I really, really appreciated this little trip down memory lane. Yeah. If I may, um, you can definitely follow Friends of Noise on Facebook. You can find us on Instagram. Mm -hmm. Um, We've got a website. If you like music and love music as much as we do and want to support youth in the opportunities to play music and to see music, um, hit us up and see how you can chip in. Okay. And that website is friendsofnoise.org? That is correct. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. This is Uh, a lot of fun. Yeah. Great. I'm glad you had a good time. I had a good time. If anybody wants to contact me, they can reach me at thisismodernrock at gmail.com. Okay. Catch you next time. Take care. Thanks, Will. Yeah, thanks.